listening to Nerd Culture Podcast. Welcome to episode 28 of the Nerd Culture Podcast. My name is David and we'll be the NCP crew. Richard. There are three laws of robotics? Luke. I am the fourth law. And Crystal. <laughs> I've got nothing. <laughs> That's why get to you. <laughs> nerd Culture Podcast is a fortnightly Australian podcast that focuses on nerd culture related film, book, and comic reviews with a healthy dose of opinion thrown in for good measure. Not only do we have the podcast, we also have our website at www.nerdculturepodcast.com, which features additional content not found on the podcast itself. For this episode, we have a dust jacket where we discuss the novel I Robot by Isaac Asimov and a popcorn junkie on The Amazing Spider Man. And we'll also have our follow-up on Oz Comic Con, which uh, just happened last weekend. I was the only person who actually attended. Thanks very much, guys. Well, some of us have got to make money. Working for the man. Working for the woman. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so, uh, a bit of a wrap-up on the event itself, and also the three interviews that I uh, managed to get with uh, Mr. Armin Shimmerman. Yay! Sharon Taylor and Francis Manipal. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, look forward to that after the Amazing Spider-Man review. First up, Dust Jacket with Richo. Well, now that we've broken our one-year mark, it's time to revisit Isaac Asimov, who was actually the first author that we discussed um, on our very first show. So are you saying we're starting a tradition and every year it's Asimov Day? Absolutely. <laughs> That's really? pretty cool. Yeah. We didn't discuss this in the meeting. No, but so we've we just, just decided... made it up. <laughs> Crystal and I have just decided now and you've all just got to accept what we yeah, say. Yeah, so what's next year? Uh, possibly the Caves of Steel. Oh, okay. oh we're doing a whole year. That's okay. We've got plenty to cover in the interim. But, um, and yeah, I think it's um, quite an appropriate choice that we're looking at iRobot because... You know, we looked at Foundation, which was, of course, the landmark Asimov uh, series of novels that just seemed to influence everybody. And uh, now we're here with his second biggest uh, contribution to science fiction and actually to science as well and robotics mm. in um, iRobot, which is a collection of short stories. Um, originally, the stories were published in the early 40s. Uh, showing just how visionary I think uh, Asimov was in his understanding of robotics, um, which was obviously you know, still in its very early stages in infancy at that time. The stories all focus in one way or another around the three laws of robotics. And the three laws of robotics are, yeah, possibly Asimov's greatest contribution to everything. I mean, it's they've become part of popular culture, they've become part of science fiction, and more importantly... They've become part of robotics Ooh. in that uh, the people at MIT um, have actually programmed robots with these three laws. And just in um, prefacing the, the reviews, um, let's just read out those three laws so that everybody knows. Uh, the first law, a robot may not injure a human being 
or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. The second law, a robot must obey the orders given to it by human beings, except where such orders would conflict with the first law. And the third law, a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law. Despite what Luke says, there is no fourth law and it's certainly not him. There is a zero law. <laughs> there is a zero law, but um, the book... What, is it he, he can't arrest any uh, OCP employees? Can't say too much about the zero law without giving stuff away. Yeah, and, and it does. Ig eighty eight, not yeah. a fan of the three laws. No, unfortunately <laughs> not. Zero law it doesn't appear in iRobot. So. No, given the, so you're not looking around, there is actually a zero law. Yeah. yeah, where does it appear? Not zero, zeroth. Zeroth. Yeah, it's yeah. it's it's in the ladder ladder of the foundation series, I believe. Yeah, oh, when he tried to bring the two series. Well, for the purposes of this review, we'll stick with the three laws because that's really what the focus of these series the of foundation is. Of the foundation of the And the fourth law will actually speak, you know. <laughs> we're going to do this review a little bit differently to what we've done in the past. Um, each of the NCP crew has actually chosen their favourite story from the book. Well, You're changing one, of, your one of them has to choose his second favourite because somebody else already chose their favourite. And the tears of oil just dripped down our face. <laughs> oh, how I weep for you. I'm, I'm not bitter about it at all. So David just been replaced by a five-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so we'll actually do the. We'll actually. I'll be actually passing uh, onto each of the crew members to discuss their specific story, and I think we'll do it in um, actually uh, publishing order as presented here in the book. So yes, this, as I said, this is a series of short stories. There is a bridging sequence between each story, which involves a reporter interviewing Susan Calvin, who is very much a key character in, in almost all of the stories. And she's certainly mentioned in all of the stories, so even the ones where she isn't playing a pivotal role. Um, really, it's her story that links each of these stories together, as well as basically the history of robotics. Uh, the first story in the collection is Robbie, and Luke has actually chosen that as his favourite story, so we'll pass it on to Luke. Cool. Robbie on the face of it is actually a very simple story. It tells the quite charming tale of Gloria, um, a little girl and her favourite toy bestest friend in the whole world, Robbie, who happens to be one of the very first robots um, put out onto the human, mar onto the human market. Um, she loves it to death. She plays with it constantly. Um, it's her... No it, becomes her nursemaid. It's the thing that looks after her and protects her. The problem is her mother doesn't like the robot at all and sees it as interfering not only with Gloria's social development but with her psychological development as well and does her utmost to wean Gloria off Robbie or get rid of Robbie completely. It is just a really charming, um, a really nice tale about the bond that she forms with um, a seemingly non-human um, entity. And when it gets taken away, she's actually quite heartfelt and destroyed. When they replace it, they replace it with someone who's a bit more... Replace it with um, a dog, a pet, flesh and blood, something that's meant to give her a bit more of a, you know, a lively companion, and she hates it completely. Doesn't... She likes it. I like, I like the fact that when the, when the dog first arrives, she's like, oh, wow, cool, a dog. I'm going to go show Robbie. Yep. Yeah. And of course but but when there. she realises that Robbie isn't there, the dog is just nothing. Yeah. Just don't care about it at all. They decide to go on holiday to, wing, to help... Gloria get over the loss of Robbie, which leads into a great scene in the museum where they they highlight um, the world's first talking robot. You can ask it any question, 
um, and it can give you, you know, limited answers as to what it, it what it can tell you. So people tend to do the typical thing of ask, you know, what it's is like a, like a precursor to deep thought. Like the precursor to deep thought. <laughs> or the Philip uh, K. Dick robot. Yeah. Um, yeah. Ask you know scientific questions, mathematical questions, questions with a strong knowledge base. She asks it, "Can you help me find my robot?" Yeah. And in a moment, because it is so shocked by the revelation that it's not a singular entity, but there are, there are other robots out there, it breaks down um, <laughs> to the consternation of all. Um, except for one teenage girl taking except notes. Except for one teenage girl taking notes. But by that, by the time the robot's broken down, she's left because she's taken all the notes yeah. um, that she needs, which you know, is Susan Calvin, who we, discover, who we meet later on as well. Of course, that leads us into them deciding to take, her parents deciding to take her to a robot factory to see that robots aren't human. They are, in fact, just mechanical beings. They are slaves. They are nothing to get attached to. Which, of course, she sees Robbie. She runs to Robbie, just as a massive steamroller-type forklift is also on the path, about to squash her. Robbie sees this, saves her life. She gets Robbie back. I actually had a tear in my eye when I read that. It's, 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 it's pretty it's, stuff. It's, it's, it's a charming story it's quite a lovely emotional story mm. and the yeah, mother yeah. is an awful woman she's an yeah, awful but even she even she is still I mean, when robbie does what he does mm. even she's like oh yeah no worries it's yeah bad. i can't yeah, actually it's, it's, what can i do now? can't argue with that although yeah. she does say to this husband you engineered this yeah it's your fault she did it on purpose <laughs> yeah <laughs> which of course he did it he didn't really risk you know, risk his daughter's life it, but knowing Robbie was there, probably. Yeah, that's but that's the whole point. Yeah. Um, and it's just like I said, it's a really charming tale. It, it's um, it it probably feels a bit quaint reading it from one perspective. Um, having said that, it is still worth the read and a good lead in to the rest of it. A, it being his first robot story, but also it being a good lead into the rest of the stories in iRobot. You know, showing the start and then their their eventual advancement um, through um, the decades and the ages as technology becomes more um, preeminent. I read it separately to iRobot. I read it as part of, a, I think, the complete robot or one of the um, the best of Asimov volumes that were going around in the early yeah, same. Yep, um, same. So I actually never read it as, started off reading it as part of iRobot, but it, I immediately became a fan yeah. because of it. Um, it is my third favorite short story. Oh, um, there you go. It's definitely in my top five. I, I, I think it's just a really nice intro to Asimov, iRobot, and just science fiction in general. You can give it to anyone. And there's nothing in it that will make them, that will shock them or go, what the hell is this? It's, it, it's, it Look, works on a few levels, I think. I, I, I first read it when I was a teenager. And uh, like I said, I had a tear in my eye. Mm. And we just, uh, Chris and I just recently started, uh, watched the uh, Prophets of Science Fiction mm. um, TV show. And they did, of course, the Asimov episode. Mm. And uh, of course, they did that that bit from Robbie, like yeah. the end bit from Robbie. And I again got another tear in my eye. <laughs> uh, so they just, it's just brilliant stuff. Mm. The second story in the connect in the collection is Runaround, featuring two um, Donovan and Powell. Donovan and Powell, who are basically their job is to go out and test robots in the field. Look, this is not a bad story, but the importance of, of Runaround mm. is that it actually introduced the three laws. Yeah, it was the first story to actually establish those three laws. So, and yeah, it, um, but the focus because the three Donovan stories each focus on one particular law yeah. this one is the first law um it revolving around needing to save a human to get the robot out of its um yeah dilemma. so the robot the robot's stuck at the edge of a lake that yeah. if he progresses any further mm. will kill it yeah so obviously he can't progress but yeah. then he's he was told specifically to go to this lake to get mm. stuff so he has to yeah. what, what and there's do. been lots of stories and, and films and 
TV shows since that have, have played upon that very sequence. Like, yeah, robot, robot stuck in, in some sort of logic loop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 absolutely right. But you're right, it is, I, I actually do agree that it is the weakest of yeah. the of collection. But with that being well, still I disagree. Tests, still good. Mm-hmm. Oh, disagree okay, cool. quite strongly. Really? Yes, no, it's not the weakest at all. Okay, cool. Uh, the third story is Reason, yep. which I must admit came very close to the to being the story that I was going to choose. Cool. I love the idea of a robot that uses the environment that he's in with no knowledge of anything outside of that environment to effectively create an entire religion. I mean, he, he creates an entire cosmology of how the universe works. Yeah. Um, but still, while still applying uh, the three laws... Mm-hmm. And with a strong logical basis, his, with his reading, reasoning makes basis. a great deal of sense. Yeah. He, he comes to basically um, see the station itself um, as effectively his god and his creator, and then convinces the other robots that this is the case, and that humanity is basically a flawed early construct early of his god, yeah. uh, but through robotics... His God has actually achieved actually, the, the perfect life. The best part of that story is we almost convinced he wanted the humans. <laughs> yes. Like, well, have you actually thought about what he's saying? <laughs> but it's just it's it's what I find fascinating about this story more than anything else is that it is entirely centered around logic and hence the title of the story Reason. Hmm. Um, it's just that I mean really the 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 robot in this story actually is incredibly logical. Hmm. Like it's an amazing application of logic. It's just wrong yep the fourth story in the collection is uh catch that rabbit once again i I don't think it's the strongest of the stories in this collection very much like run around it deals with a robot that's actually caught in a a logic flaw i suppose um between its its programming yes but this time on a on a mining station Hmm. with a robot that is experiencing amnesia it's an interesting story but um after reason which I thought was just absolutely fascinating. This one, it falls a little bit flat. Yeah, um, the drama of reason is quite yeah. strong, whereas the drama in this, it, it's meant to be the mystery of what is going on with the robot, but yeah. at the same time, that mystery is not particularly interesting. Yeah. No, I found the mystery quite compelling, more so than reason, because I sort of figured that out a little early. Right. I suppose, yeah, there's, there's less of a mystery, I suppose, in reason. The fifth story in the collection is actually the story that I've chosen to review. It's called Liar. It centers around a robot who can read people's minds. <laughs> Which I, is hilarious. I almost chose this one myself. It's very good. This was this story, I must admit, this was the first story that just absolutely blew me away in this collection. But um, the robot is called Herbie. The love bug. <laughs> <laughs> the robot is called Herbie. It is not the love bug. <laughs> and Herbie's... Goose bananas. Stop it! And he doesn't go to Monte Carlo and he's not fully loaded either. Herbie's basic dilemma is that he can read people's minds, but he's also beholden to the first law of robotics, which is that he can't actually hurt a human. But people, obviously, because he can read minds, people start to ask him questions about the other people around them. And he's stuck with a dilemma. He can't answer them honestly because it's going to hurt their feelings. Which, in a very different way to what the first law was meant to be established for, is still harming a human being. So he finds himself in a situation where he has to lie to these people in order to make them feel better so that they're not hurt. But unfortunately, in lying to them, he actually does more harm than he does good. 
what really impresses me about this story is that um, all the stories in iRobot, in using the robots and the evolution of robots and the laws of the robots and, and the morality of the robots, I suppose, that are inherent in those laws, he's also drawing attention to human nature and to an understanding of human psychology. And I, I find that this story is the one that just perfectly illustrates a lot of what he's trying to achieve with these stories because not only is it about the laws of robotics but it's about human nature and human understanding and human interaction and um, mm. yeah to me that's what just makes this a, a standout story it's the only one where susan kelvin doesn't seem like a robot herself yeah well, she's, yeah and she's just she is just hammered in this oh. story like it's just emotionally I just, I just, emotionally this, shattered this is one of my favorites as well because because it's just it's hilarious um and yeah and mainly because it just fleshes susan out yeah to yeah. to a real person and and uh and yeah she and just she just gets is, slammed but, but and there yeah. is an implication that what happens to her in this story is part of why she's so cold and emotionless in, yeah. in every story after yeah. that. Okay, the sixth story in the collection is Little Lost Robot, which was chosen by Dave. I, I chose Little Lost Robot because I couldn't have Robbie, and because uh, <laughs> uh, oh. uh, uh, it has uh, one of the one of the most interesting sequences for me in in the in the terms of uh, when they're trying to find the actual robot itself. Uh, it's actually one of the one of the few sequences, although in a highly cannibalized form that actually exists in the Will Smith movie I Robot. Mm. It, its basic premise is that there's a bunch of mining robots that have been designed with a variance on Law 1 in order to get them to do the job that they need to do, which is uh, highly illegal and, um, and very secretive. And Yeah, they're told that they, they're, uh, they're programmed with the a robot may not injure a human being, yep. but they leave out the, you know, through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. Yeah, so it's an interesting one. So one of these, <laughs> so they're, they're mining robots, and one of the miners... Uh, gets angry with one, with one of the robots and in essentially in, in so many words says get lost and so the robot does and mm. so it, it develops a bit of, a bit of a complex I mean it was just yelled at in like a really horrible way I love the way how Asimov <laughs> alludes to the guy who was swearing his head off to but doesn't actually use any bad language. yeah exactly right so he uses <laughs> you know, really bad language is really quite mean to this robot and so the robot does do exactly what he was ordered to do which is what he has to do and which is get lost but also then, then becomes quite smug about it. This <laughs> is, well, fine then. But like becomes quite petulant about a bit like me towards Luke and, and Robbie. <laughs> um, uh, so basically, so the sequence is, so they call in, uh, because they're secretive, they call in uh, uh, Susan and, and the others in order to find this robot. And so they know, they know the robot hasn't left the planet yet. So he's in a, a group of robots. Uh, they all look identical. Yeah, so what I find fascinating is Susan's uh, uh, ideas on how to actually pick this robot out. So they basically have to trick the robot into revealing itself um, through a, a series of tests or designed to, to evoke uh, the laws. Um, and I was just fascinated by this, by this sequence, just the things that the, the lengths that they go to uh, in order to get this robot. And the robot essentially is winning. It's like he basically, they basically they can't find him, mm. and uh, no matter what they do, and Susan's at the end of a rope yeah. until eventually they find the, the one trick that that gets him, and that one that trick is just is just a logic mind bender that just uh, when I first read it, uh, I was like, what? <laughs> and I, had to, I, I asked a teacher to like like explain how this worked, and uh, it was just, it was just amazing. It was really really amazing. So this is one of the charms of all the stories in the book is the, the logic mind benders he uses, and yeah. the, the third law, the three laws. 
to create these logical puzzles. Yeah, and it works. It works on the premise that they have to obey the laws in that sequence one, two, three. But sometimes three will be higher up than two mm. because of the situation that they're in, yeah. and then they've got to sort of work out how to sort of go mm. about it. It's brilliant stuff. I agree with you. Little Lost Robot really is, I think, the story that most illustrates the logic and even logic flaws in the three laws, and it is, I think, the cleverest of the stories mm. in that regard. Really mm. brings to fore Susan's robo-psychology too. Yeah, absolutely. The seventh story in the collection is Escape, which actually returns us to Powell and Donovan. And Donovan trapped in a... They have a new... tumultuous tumultuous relationship, don't they? They do, they, they do. do. They're, they're cool. like an old married couple. <laughs> and the, and cool. the longer the stories goes along, the more situations they find themselves in, the more... Uh, surly and grumpy they get with one another as well when they first appear they're just they're just standard sort of workers but after the events of escape i'd be demanding some money (laughs) (laughs) so it's like look i want compensation particularly six months given what happens to them in escape that's what i'm saying is like it's like because it fully explains to them Mm -hmm. what happens it's like well if that's the case (laughs) i want some cash and i'm going to the press Uh, escape centers around humanity's need to create a hyperatomic drive mm. uh, in order to travel um, basically into space um, and outside of our own solar system. Um, and there's a certain um, hint that there's a certain urgency to this that it, it really does need to happen soon. So I want to beat out another competition, uh, another company. Their main competition's computer has actually basically died in trying to work out uh, this hyperatomic drive system. Um, and so that company actually comes to um, U.S. Robot and Mechanical Men, which is the corporation that Susan Calvin and basically all the characters in this book work for. And they use their own computer to basically work out the problems with the hyperatomic drive. But the, the dilemma for the robot here is, and as you discover in the story, is that um, traveling using this system essentially kills the people that do it but brings them back to life at the end of the trip yeah it's like it's like the star trek transporters so basically yeah. dematerializes them and then, and then recreates them yeah mm. so and so the the dilemma that um the original destroyed computer and that um the u.s robotics computer has as well is that it is actually causing harm to humans mm. to do this and uh, yes, unfortunately, Donovan and Pearl end up being the uh, test subjects. Uh, unwittingly. Um, unwittingly. <laughs> unwittingly, yes. And in fact, they get kidnapped essentially. Basically, yeah, the computer sends them out, but um, yeah, not even not even the people at you know US Robot and Mechanical Men Corporation know what their computer is doing, cool. and it's up to Susan Calvin to actually work that out. I love um, how it says, "Can we can we talk to them?" The computer's like, "Yeah, sure." Start talking, yeah. so they start talking, but they can't. They, <laughs> they can't, can't actually can't respond. respond. <laughs> he didn't say if they could respond. Yes, and all they've got to eat are beans and milk. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the four beans and milk diet. Enough to keep you alive. <laughs> Not very exciting. Um, uh, I, I have to say, um, at this point in the in the in the novel. Um, I'm more interested in Susan, Susan Calvin than I'm yeah. in Powell and Donovan. So whilst it's nice to sort of catch up with Powell and Donovan and see where they're at. Um, for me, the strongest parts of this story is Calvin, Calvin. and her trying to work out the psychology of what's uh, happening with the brain, their their supercomputer. Okay, uh, the eighth story in the collection is Evidence, with Crystal has chosen for her story. Well, it really was a toss-up for me whether to do Evidence or Liar, but what I really liked about Evidence is the logical puzzle in it. Stephen Byerly potentially running for mayor. Um, his opponent 
is accusing him of being a robot, a humanoid form robot. So he goes to US Robots and says, is this possible? Could he be a robot? And they've said, well, we don't make humanoid robots. But um, still, it's up to Stephen to prove that he is not a robot. And in the end, it's deemed that he's not a robot uh, because he punches somebody in the face. <laughs> <laughs> in the face! <laughs> which, which, which would you know, be against the first law of robotics. So everybody believes that he is therefore not a robot because a robot could not break the first law of robotics. However, there's a, it's a lot of nice little nuances in this story. If you read it carefully, you realise that Stephen Biley never outright denies being a robot. On the other hand, he never outright lies either. Yeah. Susan Kelvin at the end believes he probably is a robot, yeah. but we never really actually find out who created him or where he came from. And uh, the, the most interesting bit for me is I uh, just, it's probably my own personal little thing, but I wonder if Stephen Byerly goes on to become uh, Daniel Olivelaw from, uh, from the Elijah Bailey novels, mm-hmm. who, which then he, um, Daniel actually goes on into other novels and becomes a bigger and larger character without spoiling anything for people who haven't read these later. Maybe he's the same guy. It's never actually stated, and Asimov usually alludes to stuff more than that. So I don't, I don't know. It's just my own little personal theory, and I like the hell so it, it ties it together. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's definitely a robot. He's definitely a robot. <laughs> Susan <laughs> Kelvin believes he's a robot, so and I'm and I'm yet she tells the press that he's human, because, which I think is a great moment. Because she uh, she likes and respects him, and yeah. uh, uh, no. probably in a way more so than she could any other human. Oh, actually, I gotta tell you, I actually found this story kind of boring. Really? Yeah, towards the end, I was like, this, he's quite clearly a robot. I just mm-hmm. can't figure out what the ambiguity is here. So, but, uh, no, I, but I, I think. But, uh, I disagree. I think it's actually the second strongest story. Oh, there you go. In mm-hmm. the collection. It's a nice precursor, too, to things like the Caves of Steel and the sort mm-hmm. of yeah, police procedural type uh, robot stories that come later on. Okay, the final story in the collection is called The Evitable Conflict, and. Uh, Actually, Crystal wanted to cover this one as well. So. Well, because it's kind of a part two to the to the Stephen Byerly story. He keeps he, the character keeps on going. Although this story, I didn't feel is anywhere near as strong as the previous one. It's very much into the world building aspect. Um, you've got your different regions on Earth, and machines look after these regions. Yeah. He doesn't actually call them robots in this one. He calls them machines, and there's this little factions all over the world who are sort of fighting against the machines, but the machines do these clever little things to quash these um, factions. And the whole thing's about Stephen Biley going around to the different regions and interviewing the leaders and finding out what's going on, which is, it's kind of interesting in itself, but I think it's, I think this one's the weakest in the book because it seems more like it should be part of a greater novel. Rather than okay. a short story in itself, it, it feels like, oh, the, it feels like yeah. the linking gap between iRobot and Caves of Steel. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. I agree. I, yeah. I absolutely, yeah. I think that I agree hundred percent. Mm-hmm. I think it is the weak, it is one of the weakest ones because there's no story. Yeah, yeah. It's just a treatise or a prologue to set up the rest of the robot novels. Like any collection of short stories, uh, I think there are brilliant stories in here. Good stories. The brilliant stories are the ones that really make this book worth reading, and it and it does deserve its sort of place in the upper echelon of science fiction novels. I don't think it's quite as good as um, Foundation is. Mm. But I still think um, as a collection, yeah, overall this is excellent. I love the exploration of the the three laws. and um, So I give it uh, four loops. Yep. One of the greatest collections of short stories ever written. 
couple of couple of weak ones in there, but I give it four loops as well. I give it four and a half loops. Um, mainly the reasons that Richard said it, it is a, there's a lot of excellent stories in there and there's some weaker ones in there, so um, that sort of pulls it down a bit as compared to Foundation. It did leave me with the urge to delve into more as a more stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, yeah, I'm also going to give it four. It's uh, it's for exactly the same reasons that everybody said. That's uh, Dust Jacket. Thank you very much, Richard. No problem. Coming up next, Popcorn Junkie with the amazing Spider-Man. Spider-Man. Does whatever a spider can. <laughs> spider pig. Spider pig. <laughs> Okay, the NCP crew just got back from seeing The Amazing Spider-Man. I was amazed. Uh, it's The Amazing Spider-Man is, of course, the reboot that had to happen. And it uh, deals with the origin of Peter Parker and his gaining of his spider abilities. Again. And his love interest, Gwen Stacy. And his battle to save New York from the evil plot of Dr. Kurt Connors, a.k.a. The Lizard. Um, so we'll get back to the plot in a second. Let's go through the cast. Uh, Peter Parker, Spider-Man, played by Andrew Garfield. Gwen Stacy, played by Emma Stone. Is it Reese or Rice, he phones? I think it's Reese. Reese. Reese yeah, as, the, as Dr. Kurt Connors. Dennis Leary as Captain Stacy. Martin Sheen as Uncle Ben. Uh, Sally Field as Aunt May. And the, then a whole bunch of other people who, quite frankly, you don't care about. And, of course, the, uh, the obligatory Stan Lee cameo, which was awesome. Any comments on the acting slash actors? There are only two performers in this that can walk away with some dignity. One being Emma Stone, who you know I think is quite a good actress um, in general. Just you know, she she looked like when she looked, literally looked like she'd been drawn by John Romita Jr. Yeah. Um, or senior for that matter as well. Yeah, yeah I think you um, actually mean senior, yeah. Yeah, I mean John yeah. Romita, John, really John Romita senior. Yeah. Um, has quite a nice presence and charisma on screen, and I believe she was. You know, tough and yet violent when she needed to be. Actually, giving her more to do would have been a bonus. I would have thought, but massive you know. bonus. Um, I also like Martin Sheen. He's good in everything. Um, it's nice to see Jed Bartlett get work after you know being president, um, <laughs> and you know provides a nice uh, grounding for the first act of the film. The problem with those two performances is that Andrew Garfield, in no way is the measure of Emma Stone and in particular Martin Sheen. There was actually a point during this movie where I just wished the whole film would be about Uncle Ben, mm. like the adventures of the amazing Uncle Ben or something, because Martin Sheen was just, every scene he was in was either moving or funny or you know, certainly entertaining, and um, Andrew Garfield was just boring. Mm. Like just one think... facial expression throughout pretty much the entire film, and just really... He got on my nerves. I think you've been too harsh on him. I think he was fine. Look, it could be it could be the story that they gave him, but I I found his version of Peter Parker. First of all, his version of Peter Parker just wasn't nerdy. He was cool. I mean, he skates around. He's he did look hoodies, cool because he, he he looks like he, Anthony Perkins, so he, he did look cool. Yeah, and so so that whole nerdy aspect of Spider Man just completely lost. His performance was just so Peter Parker had. The, the nice thing about Tobey Maguire is that Tobey Maguire, in spite of the fact that he's not a pretty boy actor, he's got a lot of charm and charisma, and it show and it, and it showed in his portrayal of Peter Parker. Whereas Andrew Garfield doesn't. No, and that's one of the nice things. I'd about prefer it. Andrew Garfield over Tobey Maguire. 
Why? Tobey Maguire seemed a bit more plastic to me. I don't know why. Really? See, I'd say that's Andrew Garfield. I feel Garfield. the complete opposite. Andrew Garfield, to me, just had no screen presence, no charisma, no anything. There's mm. nothing going for him at all. Especially and during the, uh, the scenes where he was meant to be like angry or upset mm-hmm. I was like this is just not well, right it sounds like he's been it sounds Peter, like he's had his playstation taken away from yeah, him yeah, yeah. Yeah, P- Peter Parker in the film it comes across as annoying more than anything else like I just felt no no connection or sympathy to the character whatsoever I just wished he'd get the hell off the screen and let his uncle come back no, I found or his him, girlfriend come back I found him much more watchable than, than Toby Maguire okay I don't know. There you go. Um, yeah, well, I agree with you uh, on Emma Stone. It was, um, she's excellent in everything she's in. Uh, I actually did prefer Tobey Maguire as well. Um, I mean, he's, Andrew Garfield, he wasn't, as, he wasn't awful as much as, as, much as you're saying. But it's just the only problem is just because if it was just being him alone, to be in a solo act play or something, mm. it would have been perfectly fine. But because he was with yeah. Martin Sheen and Emma Stone, <laughs> who just, they were out acting him, and poor Sally Field, who, you know, is a great actress, and she's got nothing to do. do. Yeah. I actually preferred the Art May in the original trilogy. I'm, well, I'm not sure I've gotten Art May is an important part of Peter's life, but you wouldn't know it from this movie. Yeah, it was just, I mean, she basically had really nothing to do. Mm. And, uh, and Dennis Leary did a great job, I thought, because he's, he's always funny. He had some very, was, very funny that, moments. That was more Dennis Leary rather than Captain Stacey being an interesting good character. character. And that, yeah. I should actually point out, it's more in this, the good acting rather than well-written parts. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, as much as I love, Mar- Mar- love Martin Sheen, if it was another, a lesser actor in the role, um, Uncle Ben probably would have been a bit boring because yeah. Uncle Ben himself doesn't really, he doesn't really do much. Yeah. Okay. All right, well, so we'll finish up with uh, Dr. Kirk Connors. Any thoughts? He was there. I he thought Reese Evans was trying very hard to yeah. create an interesting character and to create a formidable villain. He just wasn't given an interesting character or a formidable villain. But he, he wasn't allowed to drive the plot. That, that, what that little plot like, there actually was. That's my big problem with the two, both him and Peter Parker, is mm. that in no way were they driving, were they the driving force for the story. Mm. Um, there was very little motivation for him to become what he did. Mm. And, and very well, that, little motivation for the people to get behind him. There are a couple of scenes there where they get behind Spider-Man, I'm thinking... Why? What's he done? Well, okay. you, the, the crane driver makes sense. The crane driver does make sense, but it's everybody else that I just doesn't work for me. Well, that's a good segue into the plot. So into the story itself, um, it's, it's it's all in the trailer. It's pretty uh, easy to and say more. that it that it mm. fails. Um, Absolutely, I did. I didn't mind. There was a bit of talk online about the fact that Spidey doesn't appear for like the, until forty minutes in. It doesn't appear for about forty minutes yeah. in the original. And I was cool with that. Mm. I, mean, I was fine with that. I mean, there was, there was a lot of um, there was a lot of building towards it mm. in terms of uh, relationships and stuff like that. And mm. I think the relationship in this film, I think, is better than in the original, in the first three. I think it's, it's the two of them together are more believable. The fact, that even though Andrew Garfield can't act, I think it actually works quite well. Mm. Oh, but the story is not actually about their relationship. That's it. That's the problem. And the big problem yeah. is that it starts off being about you know Peter wanting to find out what had happened to his parents, oh. and that gets forgotten in twenty minutes. Which he goes nowhere. Actually, do find out what happens to his parents. I suppose that's the he, sequel. He finds out. See, the other thing is, he finds. He reads something online that says that they die. Yeah. And there is no reaction to that. All it's like they're dead. Yeah, he has and that same one facial expression that he has there, to the rest. But there of is the no reaction. It's kind of like his parents. He's actually got confirmation there. Oh, you history. have to assume that he's had confirmation earlier, though. That's but the thing. I mean, you have to assume that he knows they're dead. You should have to assume. But there yeah, is, of course but you should have to assume. But 
because we've been told that for the audience for the first time and he's clicking on that on the internet yeah. it makes it, it comes across that he's discovering it then for the first time yeah because he's discovering a whole heap of other yeah I, I'm, a, I'm agreeing yeah. with you it's, it's actually, poorly done I missed that bit so it I obviously didn't. wasn't very powerful it was it was one of those ones where I just went hang on the, if he's discovered this before we need to know it, it should have been dealt with earlier on they think he's dead or they yeah. think they're dead or something yeah, like that yeah I suppose so if they've been seen it like that it, 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 like that then you're, the audience was going to I assume that he was learning about that for the first time and there should have been a reaction to it. Yeah, okay. Um, then once he becomes, actually becomes, you know, more friendly with Kirk Connors, the entire um, what happened to my parents thing, almost completely forgotten about. Yeah, just moves um, to the wayside. And, and the reason why I harp on it is because that's the thing that start, gets the story going. He finds the yeah. suitcase under the thing, it's what propels him forward. And there comes a point where he just drops completely. Mm. Um, he also just seems to forget about trying to find the guy that killed Uncle Ben. And that's another thing that I mean, I, just, I mean, it propels the plot what, for a good 40 minutes, yeah. and then it's gone. What, uh, what I think we're highlighting here is that the screenwriters clearly had no idea mm. where they were going with the story. Mm. Yeah. And it comes across in the film, like, mm. Peter has no real, like, Reason great character arc. Mm-hmm. You know, like, he doesn't really go very far as a character. And... The story is really just dull. It's filled with lots of scenes that go nowhere, lots of subplots that go nowhere. Mm. None of them informing the you know my knowledge of the characters or informing the the plot or driving the plot mm. in any way. I got the distinct impression that there were scenes missing. Yeah, and well, not because I know there were scenes missing because of the trailer. Yeah, but there's actually I mean the bit where he takes her out and says and we're going to go for a swing and so they, mm. then they swim towards the camera. Why was there no scene where they're yeah, sitting on top of a building chatting I, or something? I, had that I assume reaction. that was, that was their attempt to do, you know, the upside down kiss yeah, equivalent uh, in this film. But, but it doesn't actually stop. I mean, well, it, the, the very next scene, they're at high school. Yeah. The, the next day. And it's like, what's going on? It, it, to go with that, it's that, that should be the moment where, you know, Gwen and, Gwen and Peter actually come together. He, she's seeing his world and gets to experience yeah. it to a certain degree. And that brings them together. And it's over and shot as we pan to... Oscar to find out what's going on with yeah. Connors. Well, it's the, the, very strange. Once again, the screenwriters clearly have no idea yeah. what they're doing with these characters or how to progress the story of these characters. Um, but it highlights, I think, a much bigger problem. There's not a single scene in this film that I found memorable. Mm. Like I can highlight several scenes in, you know, the, the uh, Sam Raimi first Spider-Man film and say they're memorable scenes or yeah. really even something like The Avengers has a lot of memorable scenes this, there was just I just couldn't find there isn't a single scene in this film that's going to stick in my mind and go wow that scene really I thought the, the radioactive spider scene would have stuck out a bit it, 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 looked, it looked cool it was kind of a little a maze of glowy spiders oh the room that with, the, yeah. with the webs yeah yeah I mean it's an interesting set piece but in does it really? Did it really well? The scene with an oh. with an emotional context where you get, you know, the character's point of view. It doesn't quite work. Hmm. Um, I take your point. Yeah, that Crystal just mentioned. It looked beautiful. Yeah, hmm. that's what I'm saying. And the yeah. scene with the, the scene with Jack. I, I quite. I thought that was good. Except he leaves all those other people hanging in the cars. Mm. Like, what's who's to say that those other cars that their webs won't break and the people won't their cars won't set on fire? For well, no once reason. again, I assume they were empty. Well, it's just the same, the same, <laughs> same as that. <laughs> He's manu- manufactured the web. So, what happens if the web runs out? <laughs> well, I'm just trying to figure out how that car bursts into flames. I actually that disagree with, with what you're saying about the memorable scenes because it's the the one scene that sticks in my mind, 
but obviously for all the wrong reasons, is the uh, when his powers first activated on the subway train. Mm. Oh yes, oh, that was it's, just sad. It was, it was. I can't, I can't even think of words to describe just how inappropriate it was. I mean, this is not a P, it's not a PG film, so it's not like it's aimed for the children. But when you make a film about a comic book character that is all ages, you don't have a scene where a woman's top is ripped off for comedic effect. It's not funny. No, and. I personally wasn't offended, but as if I was a parent, I was. I, it's it would just really stick in my craw, you know. What I mean, it's just it's, it's just, like one of those. It's just not how it works. It's like one of those '60s sitcoms where, like, oh, my tops go off. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not approved yeah. by any means. By many means, I'm not. I'm not saying that the, the the scene offended me personally. It just, I just doubt it was just an inappropriate scene for this. If it type didn't of film. have that bit. It would have worked though, because I thought yeah. it was cool the way he's sort of discovering how his powers, you know. And realizing, oh, hang on, I'm I'm stronger than I thought I was. This, what's happening here? That that kind of worked. But if it, they could have just left out that bit, maybe. I think it, yeah. might, it might have worked better for me had I felt anything, mm. any connection at all to Peter Parker to begin with. Mm. Good point. If, if I wasn't just to- like, once again, and I know I'm probably you know making this film suffer a little bit more by comparing it to Sam Raimi's version of Spider Man, but. I was actually along for the ride in that film. I felt enough of a connection to Peter Parker that when he's learning how to use his powers, I, I, I was there with him. You know, it was it was exciting. It was fun. It was interesting to watch. You know, with this, I was by that point I was so bored and mm. just had absolutely mm. no interest in Peter Parker whatsoever. Mm. So whilst the scene itself was kind of interesting, it just mm. didn't work for me because I just didn't yeah. feel any connection. That's, that's the shame of it. I mean, the scene where he wakes up. And smashes his alarm clock. I thought that that's pretty cool. Mm. And then the subsequent adventures of trying to get rich, get dressed for school and stuff. I was like, yeah, okay. But like you say, it's just at this point I felt. I mean, I had so such disdain for Peter as a character, exactly right. as a person. Exactly. That is, I was and like, well, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm catching all the comedy beats, but really, I just don't care. Yeah. And mm. that, that I think is the absolute number one failing of the film. I mean, Spider Man is the most relatable comic yeah. book character the in existence. He's the one that. Every kid can get behind it. Every person can, can feel something for you know. He's the loser that gains powers, but they don't make his life any better. You know, he's actually life becomes worse because of that. You know, and you feel for him. And in this, I just didn't feel any anything for him at all. Yeah. You know, I felt for poor Uncle Ben getting killed. I did like the way they the 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 restaging of the Uncle Ben death scenario. I mean, how, basically, I mean how he eventually gets shot. Actually, I thought was, I was I thought it was quite cool. I mean, the fact that the the rubber th- throws the drink at him with Peter and stuff, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. It, was a way, it, was a, it was a way of modernising it without... Yeah. yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. Um, well, I'm going to ask hmm. the question, why even bother to reboot it? Why not just continue the story on? Yeah, it's, it's a good point. I mean, Sam Raimi made, you know, what, $2 billion or something from his three films that he made for them. It was a successful franchise. It was working well. Sure, the third film wasn't great and obviously didn't receive the critical acclaim the first two did but it was a massive success mm-hmm. so why reboot it with just yet another telling of the origin when it's only been what nine years or something since the last one ten years yeah it's it was it's a silly decision but you're gonna uh, it's just the way hollywood works i mean it's it's not much you can do <laughs> reboots probably, the way they probably took batman as the model yeah in that batman begins and then dark knight mm. which were massive successes and Massive success is partly because they were a reboot of the film franchise. They were like, well, we want something. It's essentially the like movie version of a new number one. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that's essentially but, but the thing is that with the Batman reboot is the last two films in the previous franchise were A, 
terrible. And certainly the last one was absolutely critically panned, wasn't a financial success, yeah. you know. So, so a reboot really was required to try and get the franchise back on track. Well, not I mean, necessarily. The same thing said with um, Casino Royale. You don't have to reboot Batman. You can tell another Batman story that's set later on in the timeline. But is, the it nearly, is it really necessary to explain who the character a, is all over again? But from a business perspective, the damage had been done to the franchise. And so a reboot, from a, from purely from a business standpoint, a reboot was probably necessary to reinvigorate the franchise. Mm. Whereas Spider-Man, you're coming off a successful franchise already. Mm. With a reboot that fails miserably on almost every level. And yet yeah. there's yet a success. 130 million in about six days, wasn't it? Although it did look pretty. I mean, I, I do like the scene where he, he strings up all the webs in the sewer and uses the, the, sewer, the vibrations. Yeah. That, that entire sequence, including the very brief battle that he has, is probably the best part. Hmm. Certainly the best action sequence in the film. But it's not, but oh, and the Stanley cameo. But the pre- <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> Come on, it was awesome. The prettiness of, of stuff like that is offset by that god-awful shot of him walk him walking around the city in you know that first mask he wears with the sunglasses and the the beanie, which is extremely close up and extremely shaky cat. <laughs> yeah, a couple of the point of view shots of him swinging through uh, the camp kind of annoyed the hell. I think that was one of your face palms. That was one of my face oh, palms. I, no, I face palms for sure with that bit. Well, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's one where they put the camera in yeah, front of it, yeah. Yeah. and it's meant to. I mean, it's used in. Um, the Green Day video, mm. uh, yeah. Suburban Jesus or whatever thing mm. that's called. What's it called? Jesus of Suburbia. Yeah, Jesus of Suburbia. To great effect. That's the yes. only time I've seen that shot work. Yeah. It's like, and they've used it in For, you know heaps of stuff since, and it's never ever worked because it looks cheap. It just yeah. looks it's stupid. It, I know it's For a me. minor thing, but it, it, it summed up to me Mark Webber's approach, which is. I'm not really thinking about this. Yeah. I'm going to look like I am thinking about this and make it cool and edgy. I mean, it works in Jesus of Suburbia because he's on he's he's drugged out. Yeah. Whereas Peter's not drugged out at this point. What's the point of it? Maybe, maybe he's trying to suggest the euphoria of oh, what Peter's doing. I, I don't know. I cracked it so hard at that point. What? Yeah. Okay, final thoughts and then ratings. Whenever there's countdowns in movies, I find it fun to sort of in my head do the countdown to see if they actually keep time. <laughs> and they actually did in this. Wow. You mean they uh, didn't get the double <laughs> Well, as much as I can actually count seconds in my head accurately, they seem to actually keep fairly close to time. We've got something right. Yeah. Well, that's something at least. <laughs> um, I, I didn't, I wasn't, I'm not as harsh as on this movie as you, you guys are. I did think it was probably 45 minutes too long. I'll give it two. Cool. This film has committed an unforgivable sin in my mind by making Spider-Man actually boring. <laughs> and uh, look, I'm going to give it one, and that's just me being generous. I was bored pretty much from the opening shot. At no point, even the, the, the supposedly pretty, you know, spider webs in the in the zoo thing that you're talking about. No, just went. This is pointless. Please get on with it. And I felt that throughout the entire film. I had Monty Python running through, Holy Grail running through my head. Get on with it! Yes! Huh? Get on with it! I'm giving this zero looks. Um, well, I just want to uh, make spe- special mention of the soundtrack. For me, I, I don't usually mention the soundtrack because a soundtrack to me is either 
like really awesome, you know, i.e., you know, Star Wars or Aliens or something like that, and you just go with it, or it's just in the background, and I really basically don't pay attention to it anyway, so I don't really like care. Like the Hans Zimmer soundtrack. Yeah, something like that, I suppose. Although I quite like the soundtrack to the Last Samurai. But anyway, this soundtrack actually annoyed me. That's uh, it's by James Horner, and it's basically J- James Horner trying to channel Danny Elfman. Sometimes then, sort of skipping into some bizarre. It's basically, it sounded like somebody had a sledgehammer to a piano at some points. It, it even had, <laughs> during the lizard in the Oscorp building sequence, it even had the really heavy bang on the keyboards that they have in horror movies, like, like crap horror movies. And I just, I just got to say, it just failed on every level. I'm actually taking a point off because the soundtrack annoyed me so much. So uh, I'm going to go with one and a half Lukes, um, just because it had some cool moments. So that's it. The Amazing Spider-Man. Disappointing. Uh, it was uh, disappointing is the word we'll use. The word. <laughs> I, don't, I wouldn't call it disappointing because I didn't have that higher expectation for it. Yeah, yeah actually, it's, it's funny. It's funny, though. I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm probably the biggest Spider-Man fan in this room. And, Easily. And I actually wasn't that excited when I heard about it because I was like, well, why? Why does it need to be rebooted? And so I really, I mean, I was quite frankly just didn't really care. So I didn't walk into it with the the huge expectations like I did with Spider-Man 3. <laughs> that, uh, night burned into my memory. So I didn't have that at least, <laughs> but, uh, but other than that, it was all right. My disappointment comes not from any expectation of this film being good, which I didn't really have because the, the trailers didn't look all that good. No. Um, but I just didn't think that you could get Spider-Man wrong. He's such a great character. I really did not think they could just ruin it that badly. And uh, yeah, they did. You so can get that's where my disappointment much. comes from. You can get pretty much anything wrong. <laughs> As they've proven. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Coming up next. Coming soon. Okay, out July 12 is romantic comedy Hysteria about the invention of the vibrator in Victorian England. Pretty exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Maggie Gyllenhaal. It sounds You'll quite... be rushing off to see that one. It sounds quite funny. I, 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 it, I, could I, yeah. it could be interesting. Um, and Lockout, which is basically Escape from New York in Space with uh, Australia's own Guy Pearce. And uh, a terrible Maggie Grace or whatever her name is mm. from Lost. Oh, from Taken and from Lost. Take, yeah, she's awful. But uh, hey, look at that. It looks all right. Yeah, it could be interesting. Could be, could be a bit of fun. Uh, but then the week after, July 17. Oh, yeah. The madly anticipated The Dark Knight Rises. Yeah, it could be good. And what's interesting <laughs> is that uh, there are no other releases that week. Nobody was stupid enough. They actually changed to some releases yeah. so that they wouldn't come out that same day. Which is uh, a smart move, because that is going to be huge. Oh, yeah. That is going to be a, a big, big uh, move. Quite a large chunk of it is uh, in IMAX format. And IMAX, so the IMAX cinemas are showing it, and uh, their website's crashed within minutes of pre-selling the tickets. Yeah. People are really upset. <laughs> really upset. Yeah. And IMAX is like, well, what do you want me to do? <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a huge year huge. for blockbusters, and this is going to top off. Yep. What has already been an impressive year with obviously with Avengers yeah. Yeah. becoming the third biggest movie of all time. Which so is pretty impressive stuff. Yeah, I mean I mean yeah, I mean I'm excited to see it. I know Luke's gonna be excited. Oh yeah. I <laughs> this is one of the ones that I've been looking forward to all year. Um the trailers have not disappointed. Yeah. They've actually instead of making me go, Oh my god, I feel like I've seen the entire film and lessen my excitement, they've actually increased it with each trailer. Mm. The world's gone mad for this film, mm. and uh, yeah, it is pretty funny actually, just how <laughs> how crazy people are going online in anticipation of this release. And, uh, so let's hope it lives up to the hype. Yep. 
most likely won't. Um, <laughs> but we'll see. Quite a lot of excitement. And NCP's favourite cinema, The Aster, has a great selection of films shown in the next two weeks because they're still going to be open. Yay! Yay. <laughs> uh, including The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad and Jason and the Argonauts. That's right. Uh, the Ray Harryhausen double. I'm actually uh, pretty psyched up about going to see yeah. Jason and the Argonauts on the big screen. It's yep. an awesome film. Pretty cool. July 15th. So check it out. Um, and a freakout double on the 22nd with a Razorhead and Blue Velvet as part of their Lynch special. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I can't stand the Razorhead. Blue Velvet's a brilliant film. Blue Velvet, Blue Velvet's good. I don't know if I go brilliant, but it's good. But a Razorhead is just, it's just so it's crap. disturbing. It's disturbing, dude. There's a rather terrible. freaky imagery in it. Anyway, uh, check, uh, check out their full listings at www.astatheatre.net.au. Just before we finish up, I just I want to have a brief mention on Oz Comic Con Melbourne. Uh, the Melbourne event was last weekend, uh, and I attended the Saturday. Uh, it was Saturday and Sunday, but I attended Saturday. All by yourself. All by my lonesome. Everybody oh. else was slaves to the man. Woman. Oh, or the woman. In your <laughs> case. Yeah, so I just, it's, I just found it was important to mention it because leading up to it, I was quite excited. We mentioned it in you know every podcast leading up to it. So uh, I just want to give a bit of a rundown. The reason I was excited is because it was my chance to meet Patrick Stewart and, and the legend that Stan Lee, um, as well as some other people. Um, I especially uh, was quite excited to meet the three people that I interviewed, Armin Chimmerman, uh, Francis Manipur, and Sharon Taylor, uh, whose interviews will be in the, in the next episode coming up. But unfortunately, due to the events that occurred, I was unable to meet um, some of those people. So uh, I just want to point out that I was coming Con was, was brought to us by two separate companies, uh, Blue, Blue Planet PR and Hub Production. Um, so Hub Productions was involved in the actual organization, uh, and Blue Planet did all the, the PR for it, which, you know, hence their name, PR. Blue Planet PR did an excellent job. I mean, Blue Planet have done such an amazing job in terms of their interaction with um, the fans and the respect that they show to people like myself who is, you know, just simple podcasters slash website holders and their efforts to get um, to sort of to appease us and get us some interviews and stuff through, you know, they didn't have to and that, that they did it. So um, I just want to have a, a big thank you out to Blue Planet. Um, unfortunately, the same can't be said for HUD Productions. Um, this is their first, uh, the, well, the first Oz Comic Con, at least. Um, they do have, uh, they do claim to have experience with conventions, um, but unfortunately, none of that was revealed on the Saturday that I was there. The main problem that, I mean, it's, it's basically, it's all over the internet, um, uh, so feel free to check it out. I won't go into too much detail, detail here, but essentially, it's the organisation was very poor. And it's a shame because when you have a situation where you have Mr. Stan Lee, who is 90 years old, and it's his first trip to Australia, and let's face it, he's probably not going to come back. When you have that man, that great man here, and you have the comic uh, fandom that you have in Melbourne that's been demonstrated by uh, previous shows, what you do is you show that man the respect that he deserves, and you organise an event if he's going to be your draw card, you organise the event so that the fans that are going to turn up to see that man are not treated the way they were treated. So that that by that I mean that the, the basically the way the floor pan was. I mean, there's, it was it a couple it, uh, it was in two bays of the Melbourne Exhibition Centre. Two bays can hold about ten thousand people. They were expecting thirty thousand people, and forty to forty five thousand people turned up. So. If you're expecting 30,000 people and you know that your venue can only hold 10, you should open up a new bay 
or rearrange how you're going to do things to accompany those people. It was huge. I mean, the, the turnout for Oz Comic Con was massive. Mm-hmm. I've been to quite a few conventions in my time, and uh, it's definitely the biggest I've ever seen. I mean, it made the news, essentially. And uh, it, it basically became so big that people were stopped from entering due to, like Richard said, health and safety issues. Mm-hmm. Now, that in itself is fine. I mean, Hub Productions had to obey the law and stop people from coming in when they reached capacity. That's totally fine. You can't fault them for that. But if you're, if you're expecting that many people to come, I mean, you, you know that's going to happen because from your, from your pre-sales alone, you make allowances to accompany that. You don't use that as your excuse. Like, I just, I just want to point out, as, as, it's really important for me to point out that, no, of course, I have never organized a comic, a comic convention, okay? So I'm not claiming to be perfect in any way, shape, or form. It just, it just seems to me that since I was there at the venue, there's so many things that they could have changed to accommodate that situation. It just didn't have to be that way. And it's just it's such a shame that it was. I mean, I mean, basically, like I mentioned at the start, I wanted to meet certain people. And because my priority was Stan Lee and Patrick Stewart, I missed out on meeting Armin Schumerman and Sharon Taylor. And it's, it's a damn shame because they were lovely people, um, which you'll find out in the interviews in the next episode. And it's just, it was really disappointing to me. I mean, my priority was Mr. Stan Lee. And I was in line for two and a half hours to meet the man so eventually I did, and I've got to tell you, it was a highlight of my life. Um, and I do say a highlight of my life, because of course the first priority was marriage to my love. <laughs> um, but because I was in line for two and a half hours, I couldn't risk being in line to anywhere else. It was just a crazy, crazy day. I mean, it was just, it was crowded, it was packed. And it's just, yeah, so anyway, I, I, I don't want to go too far into it. I mean, it's, it's I've, I've, already, I've already posted on the website my thoughts um, and... Yeah, I'm not saying I could have done a better job. I just, I just feel that there were just obvious mistakes there. And basically, what I want to come from this is for Hub, Hub don't need to be ashamed for 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 what happened. They, I mean, it's it's it wasn't an absolute utter disgrace. I mean, just mistakes happen. But at least listen to people's people's comments about the mistakes. Don't delete them or delete anything negative from your Facebook page, which is what's been happening and to pretend it never happened because it did learn from the experience you put on a great selection of guests i mean that's that's essentially what happened the guest the guest list was so good that you had the turnout that you did and just next time allow for that have it in four bays because you've proven that you can have that much much of a turnout i mean you you had the biggest convention um that melbourne's ever seen so you've proven you can pull them in now accommodate those people um, I was actually there for a, a little while, you know, hoping to potentially come in, but there was a huge, huge line of people, and I can tell you now they were not happy. No. Um, and it seemed like the fact that they were stopping people from coming in yeah. wasn't really passed down the line to all these people who were lining up. Yeah. Like the line was huge, and, you know, I, I, I could see that it wasn't moving, and it didn't move for the, you know, 20 to 30 minutes that I was mm. outside. So I could see that I was certainly not going to be getting in that day. The the major complaint was that pre-purchases were stopped. That's that's the major thing. I mean, if you've pre-purchased your ticket... You should be allowed to get in. You should be allowed in. And of course you can't if it's a health and safety issue. Of course you can't. But allowances should have been made for that. Yeah. Can I just say, uh, I'm not a comic book nerd. Don't mean I'm a nerd, but I'm not a comic book nerd. And and at least not not to the degree that these three are... But I have a 
very healthy respect for, for Mr. Stanley sitting there that all that day in, in a, a little booth, 90-year-old man, oh, signing yeah. autograph after autograph and being nice to every single person. That's, I'm so glad you brought that up. Stanley, uh, actually, he missed his flight, I believe, amazing. and uh, actually arrived that Saturday morning at 9 mm. and was there all day signing thousands of autographs. And he's the type of man who doesn't want to disappoint anybody. So he was there. Yeah. He really know, is a, a living superhero. <laughs> and, uh, he just did an amazing job and uh, he was he was a delight. I just want to, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to end on a sound. I don't want to end on a high note. I just want to describe my meeting of Stan Lee. So um, if you don't want to hear a grown man gushing about another grown man, switch off now. <laughs> um, actually, uh, while I was in line, I found out that you can only get one signature, like one item signed. Um, per token, I only had one token, and I would have gone. I would have bought another token, uh, but I didn't want to leave the line that I've been standing in for an hour. Um, so I had to decide. I had two items. I had my uh, Spider-Man Volume One Omnibus, my beloved Omnibus, which I hadn't even unwrapped yet, um, and I also had an item that uh, I've had for quite a number of years now. It's actually it's it's a really cheesy. Uh, picture of me like my head superimposed on spider-man's body um, <laughs> that i got from dream world when i was about 20 and it's like it's meant it's made to look at it like it made to look like a comic book so it's like you know spider-man unmasked um and uh, of course he's taking his mask off and it's me um so it's i mean like i said cheesy as hell but it's it's a treasured treasured item of mine mainly because i look like spidey and in, back in when I was 20 I could have been Spidey well you, you had you the Andrew Garfield hair <laughs> Andrew Garfield. Uh, it was pretty impressive anyway so I had those two items so I had to I had to make a judgment call at the time and, and to this day I'm still agonising over the choice that I made but I eventually decided on the omnibus um, good call uh, yeah a good call I think but um, while, while I had his while he was doing the, the signature on uh, my book um, I thought, bugger it, I'm just going to... It was the, the line was, you know, trying to get pushed through as quickly as they can, understandably, because there was people still waiting. But uh, so while he was signing, I pulled out the picture because it's in like a plexiglass I pulled out. And I just, I just want to show you, I said, uh, Mr. Lee, I just, uh, I just want to take the time to show you this item that I've got. Um, it's me as my favourite superhero of all time. I just want to uh, say thank you for creating him. And uh, he took the, the picture in his hand and he looked at it and he looked up at me and he gave me that, that famous Stan Lee smile. And, uh, and said, gee, that's great. And uh, I, just, I can't tell you, people, uh, I could have died on that spot and it would have been fine. I would have come to the pearly gate saying, well, I would I'm have really happy. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't have to, you should have closed your ears during that, period, during that stuff. So, so, yeah, so I mean, so for that alone, I just want to just thank Oz Comic Con for, for giving me that experience and. Um, and I also got to meet Francis Manipool as well, um, uh, and uh, he was a delight as well. He was a great man, uh, and and of course I got to meet Patrick Stewart as well. And uh, uh, it's just it was it, you know experiences that I'll just I'll treasure, and uh, that's pretty awesome. So I'm looking forward to the next one. We'll see how we go. Hopefully I have somebody here with me. <laughs> yeah, and, and check out some of the pictures on the website. Yeah, so check out the website for uh, my posts on. Um, the event and uh yeah our our two competition winners um were there uh yes yeah, so i took photos of our two competition winners who were in costume as well so um oh, cassandra well done, cassandra was uh somebody from the game portal i believe and uh peter was there with his uh brother and uh, he was dressed as darth vader so uh check out the post thanks very much don't forget you can contact us by email at feedback at nerdculturepodcast.com 
or post on our Facebook wall at www.facebook.com forward slash nerdculturepodcast or tweet us at nerdculturecast or leave a comment on any post on our website at www.nerdculturepodcast.com and don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. So next episode, I have a popcorn junkie on The Dark Knight Rises. Yay! I'm Batman. <laughs> and, that was uh, Christian Bale's actual voice, by the way. <laughs> no, wouldn't it be? I'm Batman! <laughs> and I hope you can join us. Okay, so that's it for episode 28. That's thank you from me and from the crew, Richo. I does whatever a spider can. Luke. I am still the fourth law. <laughs> hey, Crystal. I will not harm a human being. That doesn't, what about when, like, you like, kick me in our sleep and stuff? Yeah, but she said human being. <gasps> oh! oh! <laughs> Burned! <laughs> Burned! Bye, everybody! Bye!